welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on May 8th, Lord's Day Service. I'd like to direct your attention are found in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 33. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he'd spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, for grace, for love, for life, for every gift of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, work in us by your Spirit that we may see you clearly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we enter a new section of Mark's Gospel, a section that begins in Mark chapter 8, verse 22, and ends in chapter 10, verse 52. And the theme of this section is that Jesus is wanting to cure the disciples' spiritual blindness. And so the section begins with the story today with Jesus healing a blind man, And the story ends in chapter 10, or excuse me, this section ends in chapter 10 with Jesus healing another blind man. And within this section, there's a recurring pattern. It happens three times. We see this pattern. There's a geographical reference. Then Jesus predicts his crucifixion and resurrection, followed by the disciples' misunderstanding, followed by Jesus' correction of the disciples' misunderstanding. We see that pattern three times in this section. The first time begins in chapter 8, verse 27. The second time begins in chapter 9, verse 30. And the third time begins in chapter 10, verse 32. And so throughout this entire section, a section that begins with Jesus healing a blind man and ends with Jesus healing a blind man, a section with recurring patterns of Jesus correcting the disciples' misunderstanding of Jesus' purpose on earth, we see the theme that Jesus is progressively curing the disciples' spiritual blindness. And you have to remember, back in chapter 4, verse 11, we were told that it is to the disciples that is given the secret of the kingdom of heaven. 
But understanding comes gradually. Mark's gospel continues to remind us that the disciples have much to learn. For example, we read in chapter 6, verse 52, for the disciples did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. We read in chapter 7, verse 18, Jesus said to the disciples, then are you also without understanding? Chapter 8, verse 17, Jesus said to the disciples, do you not yet perceive or understand? Chapter 8, verse 21, Jesus said to the disciples, do you not yet understand? And in Mark chapter 8, verse 18, Jesus directly correlates their lack of understanding with blindness. And he says, having eyes, do you not see? And then Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26, what we're looking at today, immediately follows Jesus telling the disciples that they are blind. And so what I'm sharing with you is the context of this section. And from this context, we learn that in the story of Jesus healing this blind man, that the healing of the blind man is accomplished in two stages, from which we learn that the healing of the disciples' spiritual blindness is accomplished in stages, from which we learn our own spiritual blindness is accomplished in stages, or that is, healing our own spiritual blindness is accomplished in stages. And so let's first notice the relevant details of this story where Jesus heals this blind man. We see in verse 22 that it's the people that take the initiative and bring the blind man to Jesus. And that's worth noting because at the end of this section in chapter 10, verse 47, when Jesus heals another blind man, in that story, the blind man of his own initiative cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. But here in this story, we don't see that sort of thing. In this story, it's the people, it's the crowd that brings this man to Jesus and asks Jesus to heal him. And that shows us that sometimes the Spirit stirs within someone's heart so that they then cry out to Jesus for help. But there are other times where Jesus stirs in the heart of the people to take the blind man to Jesus. In each way, the Spirit is at work. And so we see here that, verse 23, he took the blind man by the hand. And that phrase, by the hand, recurs, uh, occurs quite a bit in Scripture. We see it in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this phrase, by the hand, is often used with salvation. For example, in Judges chapter 15, verse 18. We see in Jeremiah 31, 32, that God took Israel by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. We read repeatedly in the Old Testament that God led Israel by the hand through Moses and Aaron. We read in Haggai 1.3 that God's word comes by the hand of the prophet Haggai. We read in Isaiah 42.6 that God keeps his people by the hand. We read in Acts chapter 9 verse 8 that blind Saul was led by the hand to Ananias' house in Damascus. We're told in Acts 5.12 that many signs and wonders are done by the hands of the apostles. And when it comes to Jesus' healing in Mark's gospel, we see this phrase several times, where Jesus takes the person by the hand. We see it here, but we also see it in Mark 1, in Mark 5, and in Mark 9. 
And so this phrase usually signals that God is working salvation in his people. And so we see, verse 23, Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. So why does Jesus take the man out of the village? I mean, on only three occasions in Mark's gospel does Jesus withdraw from the crowd to perform a healing. See it in chapter 5 and in chapter 7, then also here. Why does Jesus take the man out of the village? Well, Jesus takes the blind man out of the village. He takes him away from the house of the Jews. He takes him away from the law. He takes him away from the cloud of Pharisaical tradition. And as we saw back in chapter 7, verses 31 through 37, Jesus views privacy as a time for instructing his disciples. So it says, verse 23, he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, pause right there, so now they're in private, and Jesus spits on the blind man's eyes and lays his hands on him. Now you might recall, we saw something similar back in chapter 7, where Jesus used spit in the healing of someone, and there we observed that there's no magical properties in the spit we observe that Jesus here is using a sign. The spit is like this outward aid to faith uh, done on behalf of the one being healed. And then we read at the end of verse 23, Jesus asks the man a question. He says, do you see anything? Now you know that Jesus asks questions all the time, but they're usually very didactic. They're usually Socratic, or they usually have a particular point. But Jesus doesn't usually ask questions like this, because Jesus here, he's inquiring, saying, do you see anything? Can you see the letters on the eye chart? And the man answers in verse 24, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And notice the man's answer. The man's answer is not, I see people who look like walking trees. No, his answer is, I see people and I see them walking like trees. In other words, the man sees moving shapes, but not clearly enough to identify them. He thinks people are trees. And so the point is that the man sees something, but he doesn't see clearly. He sees trees. And throughout scripture, trees are often compared, or excuse me, men are often compared to trees. For example, in Psalm chapter 1, the blessed man is like a tree planted by rivers of living water. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is compared to a great tree that is chopped down. In Isaiah chapter 11, Jesse's tree is cut down in judgment, but out of his tree, the Messiah is like a branch coming forth. So in scripture, we see that trees are a symbol for men. And so the return of this man's sight is gradual. And notice that before he sees the real thing, he sees the symbol. Before he sees the men clearly, he sees trees. Before he sees the real thing, he sees the symbols. And I'm afraid that is a neglected pattern in American evangelicalism. Now, why does Jesus heal this man gradually? 
we see it's a two-step healing here. It's a little different from the other healings that we see in Mark's gospel. Why does Jesus heal him gradually? Well, it could be, as Calvin points out, to remind us that God's grace can be poured out suddenly or it can be poured out drop by drop. And after Jesus lays his hands on the man a second time in verse 25, the man saw everything clearly. Verse 25 uses three expressions, three parallel expressions to emphasize that the man can now see. It says he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. The church father Jerome tells us that the physical healing of this passage is real. And it's a metaphor for how spiritual healing happens. And Jerome is on to something. The church father Ambrose says that the spit used in the healing points to the washing away of our sins in baptism. And Ambrose is also on to something. In other words, this is a two-stage healing, and that two-stage healing has spiritual meaning. The man isn't cured all at once. He sees shapes first. So too for sinners. After receiving the means of grace, sometimes a film of sin remains. Now the good news of this story is that Christ put his hands on the man again. And so too for sinners. Ongoing means of grace help you see the invisible things clearly. And so that means if you are one who, who sees fuzzy when it comes to the things of the Lord, then I encourage you to expose yourself to the means of grace as often as possible because that's how it works. God's grace is poured out drop by drop when we utilize the means of grace. And so if you see things fuzzy, you ought not be discouraged and say, ah, this is not true. I want to walk another path. No, if you see things fuzzy right now, the, 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 the option for you is not to turn away. The option for you is to lean in to the means of grace, primarily within the congregation of the church. Now, we see the healing of this blind man in verses 22 through 26, but the key to understanding this miracle story is to see that this two-stage healing corresponds to the conversation that then happens in verses 27 through 33. So what you need to realize is that verses 22 through 26 correspond to the conversation that occurs in verses 27 through 33. Okay, so look with me now starting in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So these two, these two things parallel. And so you need to see that the question from verse 23 to the blind man parallels the question in verse 27. To the blind man in verse 23, Jesus said, do you see anything? And then in the conversation in verse 27, Jesus says, who do the people say that I am? And then in verse 29, he says to the disciples directly, who do you say that I am? So the question from the 
healing story corresponds to the question in the conversation. And you see in verse 28, you know, Jesus asks, who do the people say that I am? And you realize that the people do see that Jesus is someone special, but they can't see Jesus clearly. Their answer in verse 28 is fuzzy. They can see the shape, but they don't see the details of who Jesus is. And then in verse 29, Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter does see something. He has a flash of insight and he answers in verse 29, you are the Christ. Christ, it just means Messiah or anointed one. See, Peter realizes something Peter realizes that Jesus is the promised king. Jesus is the one spoken of in Psalm 2. And so for Peter here in verse 29 to say that Jesus is the Christ, it's for Peter to say, yeah, you're the, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're that guy, you're the promised one, you're the one we've been singing about for generations. Peter sees that, and Peter is correct so far as seeing that. Because Jesus is that guy. Jesus is the Christ, the one that's been promised for so long. But Peter is still half blind. He may have the label right, but he still misunderstands. He may have rightly drawn the shape, but he fills it in with the wrong color. He knows Jesus is the Christ, but he lacks clarity and understanding exactly what that means. And so Jesus then moves to stage two of the healing. And notice what Jesus then says to him in verse 31. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And as you go on in verse 32 and 33, you see that, that this is incomprehensible to Peter. Peter finds this impossible. Peter thinks, no, 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 you're the Christ. This can't be true. If you're the Christ, that means you're going to burst the bonds of the nation, like Psalm 2 says, in which case you can't be killed. See, Peter understands that Jesus is the Christ, but he doesn't know exactly what that means. Peter can't fathom a suffering Christ. His outline of Christ is filled with a color that makes the cross unthinkable. You see, for Peter, the Christ means Psalm 2, where Christ terrorizes the nations. But for Peter, the Christ doesn't account for Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53, which prophesy about a suffering Christ. And so Peter's view of Christ is fuzzy. Peter's view of Christ is only partly right. He's fuzzy on the details. He only has partial sight, just like the man after the first stage of the healing, only had partial sight. And that's why Jesus so sternly rebukes him in verse 33. I mean, he basically calls him Satan. It's harder to get a sterner rebuke than that, thus demonstrating that the good confession from verse 29 isn't complete. He only half sees. And so we're focusing on the, the spiritual blindness of the disciples. It's one of the recurring themes in Mark's gospel. Throughout the gospel, the reader is asking, why are the disciples so slow to grasp who Jesus really is? And what does this teach us? What does their slowness in seeing teach us? 
And you have to realize that the disciples are not just mirror images of the Israelites wandering, wandering in the wilderness. They are also mirror images of disciples in the early church and in our own day. And so we have to ask, what does their slowness to clearly see Christ teach us? And it teaches us at least three things. First, their slowness to clearly see Christ teaches us that disciples of Jesus can be obtuse. We, like the 12 disciples, are subject to confusion mixed with insight. And we learn here that it is within the realm of possibility that a Christian can be blurry and clear all within a short period of time. And here's what we really need to learn. The disciples' major problem is not simply their blindness. It's their failure to recognize that they are blind. It's their failure to admit that they are blind. It's their failure to admit that they still see fuzzy. The Christians who read these sections of Mark and get the most out of it are those who can see their own fuzzy-sidedness in the disciples' fuzzy-sidedness. If we ask, how could the disciples be so dense? We need to immediately ask the same question of ourselves. And we don't just need to ask the question, we need to be prepared to give an honest answer. We need to be prepared to receive an honest answer. And so we need to ask, what is it that makes you think that people look like trees? In other words, what is it that clouds your view of the truth of Christ? Is the window you're looking out of coated with the dust of personal ambition and selfish dreams? Is the window you're looking out of coated with the dust of envy, jealousy, and endless comparisons? Is the window you're looking out of coated with the dust of false definition of success? or with expectations of a culture that has forgotten God? And also, looking at this passage, if we know that a disciple of Jesus can be obtuse, then shouldn't that teach us patience when we're dealing with other Christians? I mean, do you ever get frustrated with others in your house or in the church who seem to suffer from a terminal case of spiritual insensibility? Well, we should learn from Jesus' example of patience with his own fuzzy-sided disciples. He does not give up on them. He doesn't say, guys, this is chapter 8. You don't have it yet? I'm going to go find some new disciples. Now, that's not what Jesus does. He does not give up on them. And even if you fast forward to the end of Mark's gospel, even after their dis disastrous failures during Jesus' trial and death, Jesus doesn't even give up on them then. And so... The first thing we learn from the disciples' slowness is it teaches us that a disciple of Jesus can be obtuse. The second thing it teaches us is it teaches us the danger of focusing only on material well-being. Because Peter's vision of Christ is because he thinks the Messiah will march on Jerusalem and conquer. In other words, Peter's murky view of Christ comes from a materialistic-only vision. 
And this is, this is a big problem for the disciples. You see it just going back earlier in chapter 8. The disciples have the same problem, this materialistic only vision, in chapter 8, verse 16, when they're discussing the bread. The disciples' murky view of Christ at the feeding of the 4,000 comes from a materialistic only vision. But if the disciples lift their eyes from worldly cares, then they will see that God provides them with all the food they need in Jesus. Now, there's all sorts of causes for spiritual blindness. It might be a materialistic only vision of the world. There's also the opposite extreme. Some people have a spiritual only vision of the world and that causes blindness as well. There's lots of causes of blindness for someone. An obsession with worldly cares is just one of those causes. And so whatever the cause of blindness, you need to see that sin in your lives causes the blindness. And when you're blind, you can't see properly. When you're blind, you think people are trees. And you can't see what God is doing. And you can't understand what God is doing. And you can't visualize that Right now, in this moment, God is building his kingdom. And so with this fuzzy sightedness, we are like the inept person who tags along with the architect. The architect goes over the plot of land and has a vision of what the building will look like. He says, there, this is where the foundation will be. This is where the, the foyer will be. And over here, this is where the library will be. It'll be the biggest room in the house. And this is where the stairwell goes. This is where the garden goes. But the person tagging along, all he sees is an unkempt field. See, Jesus has a vision of what the kingdom of God looks like. Can you see it? The disciples don't see it clearly because their vision is too small. Everything to them looks like a barren landscape. They have eyes but they don't see. And then also remember, Jesus doesn't leave them or forsake them. Jesus calls them to trust his vision, even when they still doubt. And they have doubts, and they have lots of reasons to doubt, reasons that they probably think are justified. They doubt because the resources seem so pitiful, or they doubt because they've forgotten God's bounteous provisions in the past. Or they doubt because they require still more proof, just a little bit more proof. When the disciples worry that they don't have enough bread, back in the previous story, the reader wonders, why do they feel so insecure? Don't they realize they travel with the one who cares for them? Don't they realize that Jesus has the power to satisfy all their needs? The disciples' blindness is in part that they're worrying about the wrong things. You too have worries, and some of them may be about the wrong things. But praise be to God that the one who turns a few loaves of bread into a meal for thousands can transform the stony hearts and hardened minds of disciples. The third and final point as we close, the third thing we can learn from the disciples' slowness to clearly see Jesus, is this teaches us that Jesus reprograms his disciples. 
Jesus is trying to show Peter that the Christ must suffer and die and rise again. You see, Peter hadn't accounted for that fact of the Messiah. Peter hears that Christ is going to suffer and die and be killed, and Peter will have nothing of it. And so Jesus sets out to recolor Peter's picture of Christ. Jesus has to reprogram the disciples. And Jesus has to reprogram us. Just like the disciples, we may have the shape of Christ right, but have colored in our own American details. We may have adjusted our picture of Christ to fit our American expectations for comfort, shopping, sex, and entertainment. We may have adjusted our picture of Christ to fit our American expectations of fast food, asphalt, and advertising. It is this universal blindness which necessitates Jesus' death. Only after the crucifixion and resurrection will the disciples, with the Spirit's help, unravel the baffling mystery that the reign of God comes through the suffering servant. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, we confess that we too often draw the right shape of Christ but fill in the wrong color, the color of our pride or our preference. Help us to see that the bounty of grace we have in Christ is not subordinate to our Americanized vision, but rather it transforms it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh, yeah.